The following podcast may contain spoilers, profanity, and views or opinions that may not be representative of the author's intent of the articles discussed. We don't always take ourselves or the subject matter seriously either. Listener discretion is advised. The following is a Galactic Network podcast. For more, go to GNCast.com. That's G-N-C-A-S-T-S dot com. The Force is strong with us, and we hope it is strong with you. Welcome to another edition of The New Jedi Archives with Zach Hagenbusher and Ben Schultz. Hello, Zach. Why, hello, Ben. How are you today? You know, I'm okay. It's been a while since I've seen your frowning face. Frowning? I'm smiling. This is my smiley face. Oh, oh. I couldn't <laughs> tell the difference. Uh, no, for real, it has been a while. We had a little bit of an extended break there. I, that wasn't really a plan by either of us. <laughs> uh, but, you know, life happens, and it's tough to get together sometimes. So what are we going to talk about today? All right, just right to business. Yeah, let's get right you, to business. You are always that way. You have you want nothing to do with the small talk beforehand. Well, before we get going, obviously we're on GNCasts.com, we're on Spreaker.com, we're on Stitcher, we're on iTunes. Wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. And if you would please share us with your friends who enjoy Star Wars as well, because that's the only way that we're going to get this... Uh, and take over the world, even though I, I'm not, I don't even know if I really want to take over the world, but that is one of the ways that we could do it. Yes, share the podcast. Let the hate flow through Let you. Let the hate flow through you. Do it. <laughs> do it. There, that's that's the real Palpatine right there. And then uh, if Joey Hart is listening, that was a, a pop for him. So, uh, a couple weeks back... With our last first run episode, we promised that we were going to cover Rebels Season 3. Uh, so here we are. We're going to cover Star Wars Rebels Season 3 just in time for Rebels Season 4, which when this episode releases on, I think it's the 24th? Yes, Tuesday the 24th, uh, will be one week away from the Blu-ray release of the final season of Star Wars Rebels Season 4. So what better time to talk about Season 3? As we've done in the past, we're going to go through some of the episodes that we thought were the best ones of the season. Uh, Unfortunately, Ben and I have not discussed (laughs) what those were. Unlike normal, we haven't (laughs) planned on which are the ones we're going to talk about. Right, so I'm just going to list off the five that I came up with, but honestly, Ben, I, I do think you'll agree with me. If you don't, you can uh, joust with me. All right, I will. And we'll see what happens. So my first episode of this season that popped up as one of my favorites was The Last Battle, which is uh, when Kanan, Rex, and Ezra uh, attempt to shut down, or or they're they're caught. I can't remember the exact circumstances, but they find themselves uh, inside of a a base that is controlled by old battle droids. Okay. And they're able to, uh, they basically have to fight their way through to get to the, uh, to get to the command center where Rex is kind of going through PTSD here because he had to fight battle droids for, you know, clankers a long time. Yes. The clankers. And it it is kind of a healing point between him and Kanan because up to this point, 
Kanan had been very distrustful of him, uh, e- even even now. You know, it it wasn't it wasn't all things are forgiven. Even up to this point, there was still some tension, and now uh, they kind of healed their wounds and their tensions. And Ezra makes a couple of really bold statements between the you know the battle droid commander and Rex about almost the futility of the Clone War. Uh, which I, I thought was really fascinating because really it is a major exercise in futility when you realize what they were fighting for, which was to put the Emperor in power. Well, the most important part of this episode, Zach, I think, is uh, that Ezra convinces both Rex and uh, the super tactical droid that I was right and that the Separatists are the logical precursor to the Rebellion. Um, I wouldn't go that far, but I'll let you make your case. <laughs> well, that's how he ultimately brings peace or an end to the conflict is by convincing them that the separatists were fighting against tyranny and so is the rebellion. So they should be on the same side. I mean, uh, yes and no. I... I don't. I didn't. I don't think I interpreted it that way. But that's fine. I mean, you know, I, I would not put that past you to bend something to your uh, your narrative that you're trying to create. Um, but that. Oh, sure. I mean, if I guess at the end of the day, it was a philosophical conversation and difference, right, between two beings that were constructed for war. You know, Rex being a clone would not have been brought into existence were it not for the Clone War. Uh, the Battle Droid Commander would not have been built were it not for the Clone War. And here they were, 15 years plus after the end of the Clone War, still holding those grudges, um, when in reality, I don't think those grudges ever truly existed to begin with. Well, and the other thing that's interesting about this episode is the super tactical droid predicts the end of Last Jedi. Really? Well, he says that the Rebellion has less than a 1% chance of succeeding against the Empire, and the First Order being the inheritors of the Empire, we see that the Rebellion ultimately led to the New Republic, which ultimately collapsed under the weight of the remnants of the Empire. So they did have less than a 1% chance of success. Okay, I... I would judge that the rebellion did succeed against the empire because the empire fell. Well, not completely because the first order is the remnants of systems still under imperial control. I thought the first order came from the unknown regions. Like it was the imperial remnant remnant that had evacuated, that had ran away and then came back once well, the heat I will had blown look over. that up because I thought that they were just systems that had not joined the New Republic. No, I I don't believe that that is true because I believe believe believe. Uh, excuse well, me, I, will, I believe I believe believe. I'm pork we will check here. with Canon. That's a good idea. Um, I, I guess either way, I see what you're trying to say, and that's an interesting connection. Um, so would you judge that that is one of the five best episodes of the season? Yeah, I would. Okay. I also like the homage it paid to the Clone Wars. Um, series. I don't know if you noticed the opening title had yeah. a different look and they played the Clone Wars ending theme. Yeah, that was really cool. 
Um, in fact, I, I think in the episode, they they even tried to play it off like this was the true end of the Clone Wars. End of the Clone Wars has. Visions and Voices, which follows up on the Ezra and Darth Maul story while beginning a new story for Sabine. Okay. Uh, in that episode, Ezra goes to Dathomir uh, and finds a cave, you know, tracks Maul down into this cave uh, and Maul, they they kind of awaken ghosts of the Night Sisters, um, which is pretty. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean that's how Darth Maul was resurrected, basically. So right. you got to imagine that that is a, a very personal place for him. But um, yeah, there's there's plenty of Clone Wars Easter eggs in this episode. There's a a painting of Duchess Satine. There's the dark saber, uh, which is an artifact that Maul initially says is his, and then he winds up losing possession of it, and Sabine picks it up at the end of the episode. Um, it's also important because Ezra Ezra and Kanan kind of destroy the ghosts of the Night Sisters here, which I think is the last vestige of them. So I think the Night Sisters are kind of extinct after this episode. Which is helpful because the uh Dathomir, if memory serves is where Maul uses uh, as his headquarters when he creates his uh shadow whatever the fuck he calls it the criminal organization he runs before oh, Crimson Dawn right the shadow conspiracy the shadow Con- consortium I I forget right. I forget what you're talking about but I I do well I I forget the name but I know what you're talking about um it is interesting because Maul tries to make the same argument to Ezra that Kylo Ren would later make to Rey later in the timeline when he says that he needs to forget the past, forget your attachments. Our futures converge on a planet with two sons. We can walk that path together as friends, as brothers. So he tries to get Ezra to join him one more time, and I think it's at this point when Ezra rejects him again, that Maul finally takes the hint and well, no, no Maul, longer refers to him as apprentice. His I, apprentice. I think he still refers to him as apprentice later on because doesn't this episode come before the one where they, uh, I think it's called, uh, or the one where they look through the holocrons? Or does that that's, happen? That's this? after. That happens earlier in the season. I think that's episode three or four. Okay. Yeah. So this is after Maul has already seen the planet with two suns, right? He's already seen that in in his mind, and Ezra has as well. Um, and they, it, it pretty sure that Maul at that point knows that Obi Wan Kenobi is is alive and well, and his plan is put into action to go and uh, and take him out. For for the record, Zach, you were correct. The uh, remnants of the Empire fled to the unknown regions that Sheev and Thrawn had begun mapping. Yes. So, uh, that, there we go. I'm right. Yeah, I hear that. I'm going to take that quote out of context for the rest of the time we do this (laughs) podcast. Well, Zach, I believe you're right. I just want to give credit where credit's due when you are right, you know. Okay. Uh, We mentioned the Darksaber, and that becomes very important later in the season. Trials of the Darksaber. Uh, Sabine is taught by Kanan, basically goes through a drill on lightsaber combat, because the Darksaber is, in fact, a lightsaber. Uh, and she winds up being very frustrated with his teaching methods, and they, they both kind of learn more about each other and about 
you know, a master-student relationship that you, you would think Kanan would have learned these lessons already. Having been several times, yes, having taught Ezra for a while, but then again, Ezra and, and Sabine are different. You know, they they require and different teaching methods. Padawan himself at one point in time. Well, you're not paying attention when you're <laughs> when you're a Padawan. Nobody gives. No, a no, point. you're not paying attention to all your learning. <laughs> Absolutely not. Uh, but at the end of the episode, Sabine has vigor. You know, she is well trained with the dark saber, and she feels ready to go and try and uh, and rescue the people of her homeworld. Uh, and that leads us to the uh, fourth episode. I thought. Well, was- well, well before you before you do that, um, before you go on from Trials of the Dark Saber, one of the most interesting parts of this episode, I think that you, I think you may have missed, um, well, or didn't at least didn't talk about, and that's that this is the episode where we learn why Sabine left oh, yes. the Imperial Academy. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I'm sorry, you're right. That that also is a huge part of this episode is that Sabine reveals more about her past up until now. Even going back to season one, Sabine had hinted that the last time she was involved with the Imperials, it it was a nightmare. It ended very poorly, but we didn't know exactly why until this point. And I want to get into that a little later on when we talk about her growth in this season, if that's okay. But it's, it's pretty much impossible not to talk about at least a little bit of it right now, because my next episode I picked was Legacy of Mandalore, which is near the end of the season, and Sabine returns to Mandalore to go and, and try and help her family uh, and give the Darksaber back, essentially. Find a new leader who can lead Mandalore into the new age and, and be free from the M- Imperial control. Uh, and I I just think everything about that arc is... It, it almost... I'm not going to say it didn't interest me. I think it was a little bit of that Boba Fett effect, right? Because you've got so many Boba Fetts. <laughs> you've well, got so many Mandalorians flying around with the jetpacks. Yeah. and the. It, it, it's very reminiscent of that character. And I think that for a little bit, it was just hard for me to get, um, to get attached to what was going on. But watching it a second and third time, it's, it's definitely a very engaging plot line. And it, it provides such a huge amount of growth for Sabine, who up until this point, you could say, hadn't had that much to work with. Well, and, and the other thing that I enjoyed about this particular arc uh, is Sabine, since her early incarnation in Rebels, has been the Mandalorian that I wanted, as opposed to the Mandalorians I had been given. So I I really enjoyed fleshing out that character, learning more about her, learning more about Mandalorian culture, which until this arc we really didn't. I mean, we knew Death Watch, we knew Duchess Sabine, Satine, uh, Satine, whatever. Um, we 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 met them. We saw them in Clone Wars. We saw the aftermath. But it's not really until these episodes that you you meet the protectors. You talk, you know what I mean. Before that, we've seen Death Watch, so we've seen the the uh, oh, I don't know the 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 hardcore uh, bring back the legacy of Mandalore people who mired in the past. You know, with their the, make Mandalore great again hats. Right. And then there's the Imperial Super Commandos as well. Right. Which are remnants or are very akin to what Death Watch was. Death Watch was. Right. Um, but now we actually see Mandalorians who aren't pacifists, which a lot of the Mandalorians who were not Death Watch were in the Clone Wars. 
um, we see Mandalorian warriors in a, I don't want to say evolved, but I guess I do want to say evolved Mandalorian tradition, which we missed out on in all previous incarnations. And I liked that. Right. Uh, kind of retaking their identity, which is ironic, right? Because that was a struggle. That was a major struggle in the Clone Wars was the idea of Death Watch trying to fight to become something more reminiscent of their historic past. Well, and then we learned some of the things that the parts... (coughs) Pardon me. We learned that some of the parts of Mandalorian armor, the things that you wonder why it's there, uh, exist specifically to fight Jedi. Right. Which which we didn't know before. You know, why why do they have the jetpacks? Why do they have the grappler on their arm and the, the rocket? You know what I mean? It, it exists to compensate for the fact that they don't have force powers. And they needed to fight against people, who, space wizards, <laughs> with laser swords. And they needed to know how to do that. So the ingenuity of the Mandalorian people is kind of highlighted in that regard, too. But my, my point going back to death watch and what they were trying to accomplish and fight for um you know they were trying to be more brutal more violent more traditional mandalorian or what we would have thought that they would have been leading up to that point it was almost uh george and dave filoni and the storytellers playing off of the expectations of the fans in that way um the irony of that is that Sabine and Gar Saxon and her family and the rest of, you know, the Mandalorians that are trying to fight for freedom now from the Empire, they have to embrace those older tactics. Well, Gar Saxon isn't trying to fight. He's the... I'm sorry, not Gar Saxon. Um, there's another... They, the Fen-Ra. other. There we go, yes. Fen-Ra. Um They are now embracing those older tactics and that older tradition with the armor and with their battle and they're, they are... They have to retake their planet by force. But but don't you think, to some degree, and, and maybe this is just nuanced and I'm the only one who thinks this way, but Death Watch was uh, embracing a romanticized version of what Mandalorians oh, were. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, kind of the way we look at, like, Spartans today. You know what I mean? Where they're, they don't live up to the hype, but they're trying to embrace this hype that never really existed outside of their own minds. I think that there's an honor. There's that factor of honor that Death Watch was missing, right? Well, probably. And that has nothing to do with these episodes. But it, it certainly, <laughs> uh, certainly plays into the full story, and I thought that that was a really great, uh, great episode of the show. And finally, my, to round out my top five for this season, no, it is not the finale. I actually thought the finale of this season was a little weak compared to others. Um, no, it is Twin Sons, of course. Uh, the end of Darth Maul. Uh, Hopefully. The only appearance of Obi-Wan Kenobi. Oh, well, the only appearance in the flesh of Obi-Wan Kenobi in Star Wars Rebels. Obviously, we got the hologram of him speaking. Uh, but we have, you know, Alec Guinness, Obi-Wan Kenobi in the desert striking down his foe. Uh, and kind of giving us more insight into where he's at at this point, you know, being in the desert for over 15 years and watching over Luke, um, you know, the justification for that and the, the idea that he believes Luke is the chosen one. And the fact that he just decidedly dispatches Maul is just impressive. Right. Like, that is not a duel between equals at all. Well, I... I don't know if I would 
go that far. Uh, I think it's just they... Maul has been weakened by time. Uh, Maul has been weakened by... It, it, it. How should I say this? If you were to catch, if he was, if Maul was fighting, and we've seen him fight against other people, right? In this, in this, um, right. What, what am I trying to say? We've I, seen. I him, don't know. We've seen him fight against other combatants to this point. We saw him easily take out the Inquisitors. We saw him blind Kanan. We saw him get the best of Ahsoka. Like Maul is still very dangerous. I'm not saying Maul's not dangerous. But I I think if, because it's Obi-Wan, I think he was just so fevered, right? He he lacked the concentration required to get this job done. Whereas Obi-Wan, all he does, that's what the Jedi do. They're great at being in the moment. They're great at concentrating. And he, he was just the better swordsman in that moment so you're agreeing with me that obi-wan was better and they were not equals no i'm saying they are equals it just so happens that against each other what one has a severe disadvantage because he's been thinking about it for so long and he's it's he's like a dog that is wants to be let off the leash it doesn't surprise me that you don't understand what equals means because you also don't understand what balance means oh come on (laughs) but but it, but I'm saying if you were to put what 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 I'm thinking of is you're you're saying that if you were to put Obi Wan against any other opponent that he would do a better job or that he would be a better swordsman than Maul and I I'm disagreeing with you I'm saying that against each other yes Obi Wan's the better swordsman when they're fighting each other right right but but that's a weakness that makes Obi Wan a superior Obi Wan being able to exist in that moment and and either ignore the baggage or use it to his advantage makes him better than Maul. But because Maul can't, he is inferior in that regard. But if you took Maul and put him up against any other opponent, I'd say he'd have just as good of a shot of of defeating them, if well, not better. But any other what other opponent what other opponent alive at the time of Twin Sons? would even be near the level of fighting prowess that either Maul or Obi-Wan have. Darth Vader. Okay. Emperor Palpatine. Yoda. I agree. And I think I think that Obi-Wan and Maul would fail equally against all three of the people you just mentioned. So that makes them equals. Well, no, it means they would all fail. But in this point where you piece them up against each other, Obi-Wan is better, so they can't be equal. Okay. I We're going to agree to disagree on that one. Okay. Um, but would you say that I've listed off the five best episodes of the season? Um, I or, don't, or is there one that stood there's out There's actually more to you? two that I would have mentioned that you did not. Well, what would you have replaced then? Because that's uh, the thing. You'd have to take others off the list. That's why it's a tough list to put together well i i would remove as much as i hate to say it um one of the mandalorian episodes okay i don't know which one because i like them both probably trials of the dark saber right because it's not as broad in scope probably but i uh i really liked uh imperial eyes okay i i i really enjoyed getting a look at 
the life of Callus as a member of the Empire and seeing um, that the Imperial soldiers, especially the officers, are actually an intelligent, cunning group of individuals as opposed to their depiction in most movies where they're a bunch of buffoons. Sure. Uh, now, we know Grand Admiral Thrawn is a badass, but we know about that from non-canon books, and then they brought him into Rebels, and he has cred from that. Um, but there are other members. Um, I can't remember the name of the ISB guy. Um, the the in, Imperial Security Bureau guy wears the white tunic. Oh, um, it, in this show? Yeah. I, I can't either. Anyway, he's actually in A New Hope. Oh, wait. Um, you're talking about Yalaren? Yeah, Yalaren. Admiral Yalaren, yeah. Well, he was he was in the Clone Wars. Right, right. right. I, I know. I, but you see this individual as more than just, well, the Clone Wars he was too. But in the movies, he was just window dressing. And you see that he's actually a strong and, and capable officer. Uh, and you also see the cunning of Thrawn, which we all knew he was cunning, where we learn that he's known about Fulcrum. And he's going to use that to his advantage instead of getting rid of the spy. Right. Use the try to leak false information or lead them into a trap that and, way. And ultimately uses Fulcrum's broadcasts along with known troop movements to pinpoint the rebel base. Right. So uh, I think that's a big episode for that reason. Um, and then there's another episode I'd mention. I don't know if it's one of the five best, but uh, Ghosts of Gen- Genosis. That's right. That's where they meet up with Saw Gerrera, right? Right. And uh, as I mentioned before we started recording, um, they should have known before Rogue One that Saw was crazy. Well, they did. They knew before Rogue well, One. Well, yeah, before Rogue One because he's separated. But you're saying they should have known before this episode. Yes. That was the case you made to me. Yeah, because uh, when they talk about how, because he's abusing a Genosin captive, click clack or click click or whatever right. they call him. And uh, Ezra makes the case that he's no better than the Empire. Eventually, he does back off. But Kanan justifies that in the most ridiculous fucking way I can imagine. And that is to say his sister was killed by a Geonosian-built starship. Well, Kanan still holds on to the baggage of the Clone Wars as well. Well, right, but, but then by that regard, everybody should hate people on Quat because they build... Star Destroyer engines. Sure. I'm or, not- you, know, you know what I mean? That's just a terrible justification. The Geonosians built things. They, they didn't, with the exception of the Battle of Geonosis. I don't think we ever see them as combatants. Well, right. I, I don't think it's meant to be a great justification of it. And I think that Kanan is wrong when he tries to justify it that way. Right. And, and I agree with you. But the idea that this is a known fact... Because Kanan has been on the periphery of the rebellion, and it's something that he's aware of. So rebellion high command 
probably knows it as well. And the fact that they chose to send this man, who has an unreasonable hatred of Geonosians, to Geonosius, or Geon- Geonosis, yes, to lead the the investigation, I think says something about the flaw of Rebel Command. Correct me if I'm wrong. I, I guess you watched it more recently than I did, but did they send him or did he go himself? Uh, they send him because they they get the ghost crew gets called on a secret mission, and when they're out in space, they get the transmission from the guy who ultimately kills himself. It's Sato Sato. Okay. Oh, uh, Commander Sato. Yeah. Yeah. And he says, we're sending you to Geonosis because the Empire has been ex- doing things, whatever. And Kanan says, you want us to find out what's going on? And he says, no, we want you to find the team we sent first. We haven't heard from them in two cycles. Oh, and the team they sent first, first was led by Saw Guerrero. Led by Saw. Okay. So that, I don't know how long cycles are. I don't either. I probably should. You know, because there's a difference between we haven't heard from him in two days and we haven't heard in two years. <laughs> that would be pretty. <laughs> well, we haven't heard from him in two years and we're just now sending someone. Right, right. So either they're extremely incompetent or a little bit overzealous. We haven't heard in two days. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I guess it could be months or weeks, but that seems arbitrary since... Okay, the Galactic Standard Calendar, and this is canon. Um, th- uh, it was based on the Coruscant Solar Cycle. The, the Coruscant Solar Cycle was 368 days long. So it, it's two years. You haven't heard from them in two years. You sent a man with a squad of soldiers who hates Geonosians to Geonosis to find out why they're being exterminated? <laughs> Are you sure you weren't trying to help the Empire do the job? <laughs> so uh, that episode just it, it blows my mind even more now that I know cycles are actually years. Yeah. Ugh. But it blew my mind in the first place because I'm like, what the, what the hell? Well, okay. In their defense, because I got to keep trying to do that, right? In their defense, it's possible... That they didn't think they had the the capability, they didn't think they had the personnel to try and make contact with them in person until now. Like, they're like, okay, now we have two Jedi, right? Like, one who's definitely come into his own and his powers, and the other who's stronger than he's ever been, even though he was blinded. And but- now we think we have what it takes to, like, if Saw went fucking nuts, maybe, maybe that's it, Ben. Maybe they sent them specifically because they were scared of what Saw could possibly but, have but done. But they should have been aware of what Saw could do in the first place. I mean, this is effectively, just to think about this, you're like, hey, we think that there are, I, I, I'm going to invoke Godwin's law here, I'm, I apologize. We think there are Nazis alive today exterminating people who are not white. Call up David Duke and the Ku Klux Klan and have them go investigate. That's what they did. You sent people who hate Geonosians to investigate the Empire's attack on Geonosians. Right. And then at the end, they lose the poison canisters, so there's no evidence 
to bring before the Senate, except for Chopper's recordings and all the cameras on the ghost, and you don't need to have the poison canister. Take a picture of the damn thing to bring before the Senate. Well, but is that admissible as evidence? Couldn't that be uh, tampered with? How is the poison canister more admissible? You couldn't just paint a imperial logo on the side know. of a it's, poison it's, canister? It's physical evidence. I'm just, I'm just playing devil's advocate. I, I, you, you're making a good point. I, I'm just saying it because Bale is just like, well, you don't have the poison canister, so there's nothing we can do. But the pictures you took are still good propaganda. No, fuck you. The pictures are evidence, asshole. Yeah. So, oh, this is why the Empire wins. This is why the Empire, except that they don't. Except that they don't. Uh, um, well, uh, okay, let me rephrase that. This is why Bale being an Alderaan when it exploded was ultimately good for the rebellion. Oh, now that's that's too soon, bro. It's too soon. Uh, let's talk about our heroes and villains here and their growth in this season uh ezra bridger who you could probably consider up to this point was probably the main character of the show yes um i think that season three is sort of the uh the branching off point of that where we finally i would say that the the three main characters of the show now are probably ezra kanan and sabine um, I, I would probably agree is this season correct me if i'm wrong i'm trying to scroll fast but is this the season where uh, Hera goes back to her homeworld too? Correct. So Hera goes back to her homeworld in season two and season three, and we'll we'll get to that in a second. Okay, but, I, I just because I think every character except Zeb gets yeah. his own arc in this season. Yeah, Zeb unfortunately is is terribly terribly underserved. But at this point, we haven't. I, I, I guess we can talk about that right now because we already are. Uh, Zeb and Chopper both kind of just become, I mean, Chopper's always been kind of a side character. Right. But Zeb definitely gets relegated to, I'm making a wise crack every once in a while. Well, he does right? have one episode that's mostly him and the droids, doesn't he? Where they um, have to defend the base from Imperial probes. Yeah, yeah. I think you're right about that. But I, Again, I don't know if that's this season definitively. But, I mean, that's not. That's not a character arc development thing. <laughs> right. He kind of had his thing already. It's like, oh, the Lasan have already found a new homeworld, so now you're just hanging out here until the war is over, right? Except for the fact that Zeb is probably the most influential character in this season. In this season? Well, because Zeb is the reason that Callus is the new fulcrum. Sure. I guess you could say that. So, well, because Callus is trying well, to repay I mean, his he debt. Def he definitely is the reason why Callus is the new Fulcrum, but I don't know if I would say that that makes him the most influential character of this well, season. Well, but most of what happens in this season happens directly because of the Fulcrum transmissions, the Fulcrum plot point, and that wouldn't continue if it hadn't been for Zeb. Oh, uh, yeah. Okay. So, he's underserved, I agree. I'm just saying he actually has influence even though he doesn't have screen time. Sure, and that action was actually in the last season. So in season three, he still winds up being relatively underutilized. Um, Ezra, he's growing older in appearance. This is the first season we see where they've they've changed his appearance from sort of long-haired uh, youth to 
short-haired, very short-haired, um, longer, bigger kid. You right. know, now he and Sabine are about the same height. Right. He's a definitely a teenager at this point. Yes. Well, he was a teenager before. He's an older teen. Yes, now. he's getting into the uh, the older high school. He can years. drive now, and he is more powerful with the Force. Uh, this was a conversation that he had with Yoda in season two, uh, where Yoda says, "How we fight, right? How we fight is important. It's it's how you choose to use the things around you." And I think that a big part of his journey on this season is figuring out how to fight. How to use, because, uh, I mean, right at the beginning of the season when he has his new lightsaber, which we, we do not know how he constructed it or how he got the other crystal. He just has a new green lightsaber. Um, we see that he's using his power um, in a very uh, Are you talking about when abusive he, way. Right. When he kills everybody and then makes the walker walk off the platform. Makes the walker walk off the platform, yeah. By mind-controlling the pilot? Yes. That is some dark shit. It's some real dark shit. Now, he doesn't get that dark for the rest of the season. That was pretty much just for that season opening episode but it's still something to keep track of you know that he he's close to the edge he's close to the edge and maul definitely plays off of that for sure um and i guess that relationship with with he and maul he, he and his link with maul i'm, I'm not gonna say that it's antagonistic because up until that confrontation in the cave with the dark saber um i think that there is still a part of ezra that is kind of is curious to to find out what he can get from Maul. Does he, I vaguely remember this, but does he actually utter the words that I'm not a Jedi? No. In that opening thing where somebody says something about that's not how Jedi operate in this season, I vaguely remember. Oh, maybe. I don't know. I, I vaguely remember somebody saying that's not the Jedi way and he's saying I'm not a Jedi and then doing something badass but wholly dark side. Yeah, I don't think that he outright says he's not a Jedi because <clears throat> he kind of he kind of is, right? That's the idea anyway. But he's a very different kind of Jedi than we've ever seen. You know. See, I don't think he's a Jedi. I think at best he's a gray force user. Sure. Because he learns as much from Maul as he does from Kanan. Well, maybe not as much, but he learns from Maul. And he certainly studied that Sith holocron for a while, didn't right. he? So I, I, I think that he's just getting more tools for the toolbox and, and also learning the lesson from Saw of the experience with Saw Gerrera of seeing what an extremist looks like and what, how an extremist operates. Well, I, I think th that's when Ezra sort of starts to draw the line between what can I justify and what can't I justify? I, I think that might be the point that pulls him back because yeah. up until then, let's face it, Ezra is motivated by hate. Right. His parents are gone. The Empire took him. I hate the Empire. And then, well, because he, he says he wants to protect his friends. He says he wants to make sure they don't get hurt. Right. He wants to protect his friends because the Empire is terrible. I, I'm not saying he's wholly motivated by hate. I just mean his motivations are not what we would imagine pure Jedi motives to be. Though I don't think any Jedi's motives were that way because I think Jedi's were terrible. But... Um, I think Saw is, is the meeting Saw Gerrera is the point that pulls Ezra back because he sees this dude doesn't even have the force and look what happened to him. Right. 
What 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 am I going to become if I choose to be like him? Uh, Ezra's teacher, Kanan, blinded at the end of the second season, but not beaten. He certainly is very down on his luck, though. At the beginning of the season, he he stays away from everybody. He has a hard time reconciling his lack of sight, but it it uh he has to learn quickly that he can be more powerful without his sight from the Bendu. And I, I think he takes to that lesson pretty well. Eventually within the first few episodes of the season, you forget that he has any disability whatsoever. And in fact, he's even more attuned to the force and even more um, deadly now than he was before that all happened. Well, yeah, now he's daredevil, the Jedi, he's daredevil, the Jedi, but I think He's also embraced, you know, Kanan before there's like Kanan with eyes, <laughs> Kanan without eyes, Kanan with eyes we saw was the cowboy Jedi, quote unquote, right? He was the, he carried a blaster on his hip. Uh, he wisecracked and pretended he wasn't a Jedi and didn't want to admit to anybody and then hid it from himself. And he didn't want to embrace that part of his identity. Kanan without eyes almost kind of has to become that Jedi. And he was already making steps toward that, you know, well, when, when, when he the was ghost acknowledged him. Yes. When the ghost knighted him, he was already making big steps toward that. But I think that, um, now he kind of sees himself that he really does have to carry on this Jedi tradition. And he begins to take his role and his responsibility in that a lot more seriously. Well, I think losing his sight forced Kanan to embrace the Force in a right. way he didn't before because he couldn't function without it. And ultimately, one of the things I like about Kanan's character is he really gives no shits about the Rebellion. Well, no, and now he does, though. Well, I think but, it, in Season 3, we also see him embrace that piece of the puzzle but, that the Rebellion is worth fighting for. But the Rebellion is worth fighting for because Hera is worth fighting for, and Hera is fighting for the Rebellion. And there is, again, I'm not saying that Kanan is not a good rebel. That's not what I'm saying at all. But Kanan's motivation has been very un-Jedi and very human up until this point, which is one of the reasons I like him. Uh, because he's motivated because he's in love with Hera. And... He does things that, like, he goes and asks the Bendu for help because Hera's in danger. Hera and his friends, his his extended family. Right. And she pleads with him. One of the few times we see her, I don't want to say openly acknowledge her feelings, but she's very the mom who keeps the ship together and very much Captain Sindula uh, almost all the time. But when she's telling him, you know, Kanan, get back here. And he says, I'm going as fast as I can. And she's like, go faster. Hurry back, love. You know, it's one of the few times she acknowledges just flat out that bond. Obviously, we know it's there. We can tell the actor, the voice actors do an incredible job. The animators do a good job of not having to overtly state it. But because they don't overtly state it, when it is just verbalized, it has that much more meaning. Right. I agree. Um, but we do not see that relationship. I mean, most of that takes place off screen. Right. right? So we don't see that um, fully develop on screen until 
next season. And Apparently, we'll get into there's that a later book on. about it too that I have not yet. Are you read. talking about a new dawn? I don't know what the title of it is, but apparently there is a book that discusses Kanan and Hera meeting and becoming a crew. Yeah, that's a new dawn, which I that was one of the first books that they put out actually under the new canon. Um in tone, it's very different. It's like uh it's kind of the growing growing pains thing where John Jackson Miller, who's the artist, or, or rather the author of the book, I think he was given kind of an idea of what to work with, but I don't think that he worked very closely with the writers of the show. Okay. And that kind of creates a, a different flavor for Kanan and Hera both that you really wouldn't expect. Oh, so maybe I won't enjoy it as much as I... I, I think you would. I, I can lend it to you. It's all right. I, I liked it enough. I really... did. I, I've gone on record numerous times saying that you know Rebels and Clone Wars were the prequels we wanted, uh, but I really like the Ghost Crew. I would be hard pressed to pick a favorite member of the crew, and uh, one of the things I like about it is they're very human, realistic relationships. Yeah, most certainly. Um, Hera's personal armor starts to crack a little further as we do get another another visit for her back to her home world uh, when, when she attempts to retrieve the Kalakori. Uh, and she definitely disagrees with Saw's methods, which is also interesting to see that she kind of... Uh, that is kind of in contrast with who we sort of see her... Not that we see her to be, but who she could be. You know, someone who... She's been so devoted to the idea of this rebellion from the get-go, from its very origins, that now we have a true, quote-unquote, extremist who she clashes with on viewpoints. You know, it's like, um, up, up until this point, you might be able to argue that maybe she has been embracing the idea of the mission is important, the, the cause is the most important thing, do whatever we can do to, to achieve it, but... Saw, much the same for Ezra, right, is the person that we start to see her kind of like, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to go that far. We're not animals. Well, and, and I think it speaks to their different motivations. Um, Saw is very much an ends justify the means person. Right. He, the Empire needs to be stopped at all costs. And Hera opposes the... Hera doesn't oppose the Empire so much as she embraces that people should be free. Like, I get the idea that Saw just hates the Empire. He's not necessarily fighting for people to be free. Like, like Rose says in Last Jedi, we don't win the war by destroying what we hate. We win the war by protecting what we love. Did you just use a quote from Rose Tycho? Yes, as, I did. As justification for a point? Well, and, and I think Saw represents the destroying what we hate, and Hera represents the protecting what we love. Sure. And so I take wisdom from where it's found, and that, that I think exemplifies the contrast between those two characters. Very interesting. You heard it here first, folks. Ben found philosophical justice I, in I The Last Jedi. I said it was a bad movie. I didn't say there wasn't philosophy in it. I almost said philosophy. 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 Uh, 
Sabine, as we've talked about, steps into her own in a big way in this season by not only confronting her personal misgivings about her past sins, which when she describes it, you kind of almost think, how did you not know <laughs> that that right. was going to be a bad idea? Wait, wait a minute. Building weapons of war cause people to die? Build- no way. <laughs> wait a minute. Building weapons of war that specifically attacked the material that your people's ceremonial armor is made out of? How could that have turned wrong? <laughs> oh, it turns out they used it to control and to kill your people. Wait, well, wait a minute. Damn. You're building Mandalorian slaying bullets? <laughs> oh, and they used them to kill Mandalorians. <laughs> Who would have seen that shit coming? Yeah, exactly. But she was young at the time. I think she was she would have, could have only have been like 14 or 15. Well, and it's heavily implied that she was forced into the academy as a point of honor. Right. Because it dis when she left the academy, that was a stain of dishonor that drove a wedge between her and her family. So I don't necessarily think it's that she didn't understand as much as we laugh about it. I think it's more she was forced to do it because it was a point of honor. Because we tend to think of honor and as a good thing, but it can also be detrimental. Oh, okay. So you're you're thinking that they gave her this assignment and she thought, well, I, I better do it. Otherwise, my family will be looked down upon. Right, because it's a point of honor. I have to achieve, I have to do the task in front of me. And it wasn't until she saw the death of the Mandalorians that the gravity hit her that there are things more important than honor. Right. And that does lead her to. Mastering the Darksaber, helping reclaim it, and then uh, heading back to Mandalore, which we do not get the the full um, resolution of that until Season 4. But she does leave the Ghost crew. Yeah, for, for a time. Which was shocking to me when it occurred. For, and it's not for too long. I think, I think we only get like two episodes, maybe, where Sabine is not there. I, she comes back in the finale. I, yeah. don't, I haven't seen Season 4 yet, so I don't know if she stays... When yeah, she comes yeah, back. she stays. Um, well, because it, it's not—it's like the opening set of episodes of season four. They resolve the the Mandalorian thing, and once they resolve it, I mean, spoiler alert: she is not. She gives. She gives the dark saber to Bo-Katan, and Bo-Katan becomes the leader of the Mandalorians. So, like, that wasn't a role that Sabine ever wanted for herself. Right, she wanted to find the next person who was worthy and she knew that that person wasn't her but also she had other interests outside of the planet so it was like hey i do feel a responsibility to help you but at the same time i got my own shit going on right so she does rejoin the crew after that point i i'm just we we talked about the the trappings of honor and she brings the dark saber back and she uh, reconciles with her family and then that family bond and honor is strong enough to have her leave the ghost crew for a time. And that, like I said, took me by surprise. Not that it was out of character or not that it was bad writing. I'm not saying that at all. I think it was very well done. I was just like, whoa, you know. You've mentioned Callus, uh, and up to this point, um, in season one, he was very much a cookie-cutter a cookie cutter villain. Yep. Um, in season two, we started to see him question the ways of the Empire. And then here in season three, we see him become the new Fulcrum. 
uh, and feed information to the rebels. And like you said, a lot of the driving quote, you know, plot main plot of the season comes from him and his messages. Even uh, they, they try to rescue him once and he chooses to stay behind. Um, right. Well, I don't know if they were trying to rescue. Yeah. Him. Ezra flat out says we came here to get you out. Cause, uh, Callus asks, you came here to warn me. And he's like, no, we came to get you. To get you. And he was like, no, leave well, me they, here. They end up framing uh, Lista. I'm probably the, the wrong. Yeah. They end up framing someone else. So Callus uh, judges that the rewards are worth the risk and he's going to stay behind. And he, of course, is found out at that point and winds up being, uh, they wind up having to come and rescue him anyway. So. Well, he escapes on his own, kind of. Kind of. He, he gets away from his captors, and he gets in an escape pod, and they pick him up. Right. But they did have to come get him. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about the villains of the season. Grand Admiral Thrawn. Uh, I, to step away from Rebels exclusively for a little second, Ben, tell me a little bit, because we haven't really discussed this very much. Tell me about your history with the Thrawn character. Were you... Were oh. you reading the Timothy Zahn trilogy oh, yeah. when it came That's out? That's one of my favorite uh, legends uh, series of books. Is the heir, that's Heir to the Empire, right? Heir to yeah, the, Empire the, Heir, the, the Heir to the Empire trilogy. So you were reading them as they were being released. I guess can you describe the hype or the feeling on the Thrawn character at that time? Well, Thrawn was a unique character right away because he's a non-human Grand Admiral in the Empire. And you have to remember, the Empire is led by somebody from Naboo, so they're very Star Wars racist. Well, okay, up until the new, up until Disney purchased the series, they were very Star Wars racist. Right. I, I think that since Disney has purchased the series, we've seen other Imperial officers that have not been human. So, but, but at the time, at when the, the time, Thrawn trilogy yes. came out, if memory serves, he was the only non-human Imperial officer, certainly the only non-human Grand Admiral. Yeah, they were they were definitely stereotypical space Nazis up until that point. Right. So when when you learn that Thrawn is not a near human or human, that in and of itself automatically led, leads credence to how good this character is because he has to be that much better in order to attain his rank in the Imperial military. And in the Timothy Zahn trilogy, now it's been a while since I read them, but if memory serves, Thrawn lives up to the hype. So I was excited when I knew he was coming into Rebels. And how would you judge their uh, adaptation of this very well-known Legends character into the new canon? I think they did a wonderful job. I think he is... Cunning and intelligent. Um, I've often said, not in a Star Wars context, but that intelligent evil, intelligent evil scares me more than just evil. That's why Palpatine is more frightening than Maul, because he is cold and calculating intelligent evil. And I think Thrawn, though he doesn't have the Force has many of those same characteristics where he's playing the long game and he knows not to waste his resources. And uh, let's face it, if not for the fortuitous acts of the Bendu, 
would have wiped out the rebellion, or at least this section of the rebellion at the end of this series. Right. He had him. He had him numbered. He had him pinned. Yeah. But uh, I agree with you. I think that from all of the visions, because I I did read the Thrawn trilogy before this season came out. I didn't read it as the books were released, but I've read them. Um, And literally the voice of the character, Lars Mikkelsen, the the, the guy they chose to play Thrawn, he, he sounded exactly like what I thought Thrawn sounded like in my head. Like, Everything about the character from the look to the demeanor to the performance was spot on. I was like, this is great. If only, and I know that there are going to be old school fans of the Legends canon who are probably never, never Disneyers or something, right? Who are like, I can't believe you took Thrawn, blah, 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 blah. If only that they would ever give this chance, right? To, to, to see that this character was done justice in this way. That being said... And I don't know if you agree with me, but it's not Thrawn's fault. There was something about this season, while they did a good job from a story-building perspective, which of course they always do. Dave Filoni is a master at that sort of thing. They, There was just something lacking from the overall weight or the drama of, of it all, right? And I think that's kind of the Darth Vader effect in the sense that we had him like, we had Darth fucking Vader right. as a looming presence in season two. We had him open up the season. We had him close the season. He was a real and genuine threat to these characters. And unfortunately, for simple story convenience purposes, they've now, he's not around anymore. He's focusing on other things. And now Grand, Grand Admiral Thrawn is their, their primary villain, which, again, not a knock on Thrawn because that's a a but, very but very a dangerous step down adversary. In the drama. I I yeah, it's a step down because it's not a the they, bad guy. They kind of nuked the fridge when they pulled Vader out in season two. I know. I was kind of shocked by it myself. I mean, it was awesome. Oh yeah, don't get me wrong. I so fanboyed well. on the whole thing. But you you see where I'm coming from. I'm not trying to insult Thrawn. I just think, unfortunately. Uh, they framed it a little differently, and season four also kind of suffers for that in a way, because Vader never reappears. Right, he doesn't. No, uh, I guess again I haven't. Again, seen you season haven't seen. Four. Yeah, sorry. Spoiler well, alert. That's again. fine. But Vader never reappears in season four. He's he's now a an entity that we. I mean, okay, I guess I can't technically say that he does reappear, but not actively, not in the way that you would think that he would. Um, so that that does the season does suffer, but I kind of like that in a way because it it demonstrates to you that no matter how much drama these characters are in, they're really inconsequential to the empire. I I guess you're right. I, I mean, because they're not Palpatine's not dispatching Vader to take care of Phoenix Squadron because they're not a threat to him. They have other things they need Vader to do that are more important than Phoenix Squadron. And I enjoy that we're watching people who are not... They're obviously the main characters of their show, but the fate of the Rebellion rarely actually hinges on their actions. Okay. Uh, Finally, Maul. 
who doesn't get a lot of screen time relatively in this season, um, but he did re-enter the fray in season two, and we see him scratch and claw his way. This is definitely Maul at the end of his, you know, he's past his prime, I think you could say. And, and really, after he was cut in half, you could probably argue he was past his prime. Oh, but I disagree. Up up until this point, you know, we know for a fact that he was the the mastermind or the head of, of Crimson Dawn. Right. Of uh, a, a criminal empire all unto its own. Two criminal empires. Now two criminal empires. Uh, and that he's lived a lot of life. And I think, and this could just be me, but the way that we find Maul in season two and the way that he behaves in this season, I think he can tell that the end is coming. You know, in his body, in, his, in the way that he's able... To you know, maybe not able to sustain himself or beginning to not be able to sustain himself. I think that he can tell that whatever time he had, whatever borrowed time he got, uh, is coming to an end and he's going to need to find a way to kill Kenobi or this has all been for nothing. Well, but realistically, and this is one of the reasons I'm going to kind of backtrack a little on one of the things that I said Previously, I think Maul was ready to die once he knew that the Chosen One was still alive. Because he even says to Kenobi when he dies, he will avenge us. I, Because ultimately, yes, he hates Kenobi, but he hates the Emperor more. And so I think it was, I think Darth Maul not only sensed the end, but ultimately saw finally the same thing that Ezra did. Because Ezra even says, what Maul is searching for and what I am searching for are the same thing. Not that they're in the same location, not that they take us to the same person. They are the same thing. And I think Maul misinterprets that up until the point where he gets cut down and he says to Obi-Wan, you know, you're here. I don't remember what the exact exchange is, but he asks, are you guard, guarding the chosen one? Is, is he the chosen one? Right. And then Obi-Wan says, yes. And Maul says, he will avenge us. And then Maul dies. If Obi-Wan had said no, Maul might not have given up life so easily because we know his hatred can sustain him. Yeah, but at that point he had already been... The fatal wound had been struck. But I, uh, what, what you've said has made me think about it in this way. I feel like it's possible that Maul understood his weaknesses against Obi-Wan. And perhaps he went to Tatooine looking for a way out. He he may have. I, I'm just thinking about it. This is a, a man. I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that Darth Maul was like trying to commit suicide by cop. But, right. But, but maybe he possible. was trying to commit suicide by yeah. cop. I'm just looking at it as this is a man 
who has not been able to shit for 15 years. <laughs> 20. 20, More, probably. Longer. Oh, yeah, because it's 10 between like 30. One and two. <laughs> right. He has not been able to take a decent shit for three oh, decades. And he has sustained himself on sheer hatred. The idea that Obi-Wan, yeah, it was one sword blow. It was decisive. Fine, I get that. But I think more than that was Maul coming to the realization that he was actually working counter to his own interests. Because at this point, Maul had no hope of killing the Emperor and taking over as the Dark Lord of the Sith. He'd already faced Palpatine and got his ass handed to him. Well, and we know from the end of Season 2 that he had he completely um, abandoned, abandoned his Darth title now right. he simply is known as maul so he's given up that dream now he wants revenge and when he gets to tatooine he realizes that the best way for him to get his revenge is to stop being in the way of his revenge i i think he finally sees what ezra saw it's possible um i also think that Maul, uh, or I, I also think it's interesting to note that Dave Filoni in the, um, I think it was in the Rebels recon that went with this episode, um, where they talked, you know, they talk with Dave and they yep. talk with the storytellers. There was, there was a lot of stuff they had to cut from this episode to get it down to the length that they, that they needed it to be. And they just kind of had to make decisions on what was important. And unfortunately, they did develop a scene where, Maul in, in the Tatooine desert converses with his brother or his memory, a memory of his brother, right? Uh, with Savage Press. And I think that would have been very interesting to see. Now, well, since you brought up Rebels Recon, there was a Rebels Recon that I wanted to bring up uh, with Pablo Hidalgo. Of a, about a story point? About a story point. Okay. And, uh, this is a this is a greater story point, but it reinforces one of my criticisms of Last Jedi, which is why I'm bringing it up. Okay, uh, they talk about did Bendu contact or speak with Sabine during Trial of the Dark Saber, and Mister Hildago says that's important. If it was important, we would have shown it on screen. If it's not on screen, it didn't happen. Okay, that's a bunch of bullshit. That's what he said. Okay, that's what he said. He is not involved in The Last Jedi. He didn't write The Last he Jedi. He is the head of the story group. It doesn't matter. The filmmakers have been given absolute absolute power. They can J. do whatever J. they Abrams want. J.J. Abrams said he was in contact with Pablo three times a day when he was working on Force Awakens. Okay, the story group is... They are not the people who their craft job the story. Their job is to make continuity. Yes, their job is to take content they're they're like the people from the old star trek days where it was 40 years worth of continuity I'm and if somebody goes just oh saying, well i'd like to put this character here just pablo saying, would be the person who steps in and says that doesn't make sense to have that character in pablo, this time pablo agrees with me that if it's not on screen it didn't happen that's that's I, all that's I'm pointing not out. that's not the truth but okay <laughs> uh, you pa know it's, pablo hidalgo Trumps Zach Hagen. I, I, but that it's not the same fucking context. <laughs> Do you want me to? I'm okay. You know, on, honestly, 
I'm just fucking with you, man. Let's All just right? close the door on this episode right now, okay? <laughs> I think we, we hit everything we needed to hit, right? Okay. Repel season three. Okay. A- any other thoughts about the season? No, I... I don't think it was the strongest season of Rebels. I still think that was yeah. season two. As of right now. It, I have not seen I would season like to four. Think, I'd, like to, I'd like to see what you thought of season four. I, I, I don't know if I would say it trumps season two. Season two was definitely very strong, but um, it could. Uh, and, and we'll see. I, I just mean up until this point, what I have seen, uh, season three is not the strongest season of Rebels, but it is still... Much better than Phantom Menace. <laughs> Everything's better than Phantom Menace. Everything is better than Phantom Menace. I, I'm just saying that Rebels is the prequels I had hoped for. Okay. And with that, we'll close the book on this uh, episode of the New Jedi Archives. Uh, like I said at the top of the show, if you liked this episode and you want more people to hear it, then please share it with your Star Wars loving friends. Um, we, we've got some things in the works as far as live podcasts at different locations. Um, I think it's just going to be me by myself. Uh, you know, if if I <laughs> if you're hearing this, then the appearance is definitely happening. If you're not hearing this, then uh, you know what? We're just going to cut that. We're just going to cut that. <laughs> um, Maybe you could bring Joey along. Jo- oh, maybe Joey and I could do a live. Okay, fine. Whatever. Maybe there will be a live show at... Uh, LinkCon in Merrill, Wisconsin, Labor Day weekend. I'm planning on going, and I, I was there last year with a bunch of business cards, and that was our first quote-unquote convention appearance as a podcast. Unfortunately, Ben was not able to make it, and I don't believe that Ben will be able to make it this year either, unless maybe you can come for Sunday? It's possible. I, it depends on what day. It's move-in day for my daughter at college. Right. I have no problem saying that. So it really depends on what day we get assigned oh, to move in. So you can't just like go on Saturday. Right. You, you are we told get, when. We get told we have this ah. window of time that we have to move her in. And so they, it's, it's really efficient. You'll probably cut all this anyway. But they, uh, they give you a window of time. You pull up. They assign you a parking space. They have a group of people there to help you unload. They move everything up to the room with you. You have to then move your car. Oh, boy. And then you set everything up. But they assign you a window, so that's why I can't commit to being anywhere. I see. I will get one day during that weekend, and we won't find out until the week before. Well, frankly, Ben, you know, you could come whatever day it isn't. Yeah, that's true. I may be able to, I could probably do that. Okay, well. If we have her packed, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it. Tentatively. Tentatively, Ben could be at LinkCon with me. And if he is, we'll record a live episode there. Until then, Ben, I want to talk about something next week. And it's interesting that we ended on that big, almost big fight there. <laughs> because our next episode, I feel like we almost certainly will have that big fight once again. Awesome. For, for everybody who loves it when we fight. Uh, <laughs> I I gotta have a I don't know if it is for therapeutic reasons or something, but I I just have to have a an honest conversation about the current state of the Star Wars fan community and what the fuck is going on. All right, great. I look forward to fighting with you in two weeks. Let's do it in two <laughs> weeks' time. Ben, may the force be with you and also with you, Zach. The power of the dark.
This has been a Galactic Network podcast. For more, go to GNCast.com. That's G-N-C-A-S-T-S dot com.